0: This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. This is a big year of professional anniversaries for me. 2023 marks 20 years since I graduated college, 10 years since I started working at Fast Company, and five years of hosting this podcast. On June 6, 2018, the first episode of this podcast aired with an episode titled, What's Ruining Our Sleep? The show at the time was called Secrets of the Most Productive People, a nod to our annual magazine package of the same name, where we ask people from across industries how they get things done. I was the senior editor of the work-life section at the time, and my colleague, Anissa Purvisari-Horton, joined me as co-host. One thing that I've loved about working at Fast Company is the entrepreneurial spirit that the staff is allowed to foster. The early version of this podcast was a perfect example of that. Our art team made a logo and we tapped staff with radio experience. We turned our content knowledge into episode topics that we thought the audience would enjoy listening to. So Anissa, how'd you sleep last night?
1: Well, I slept very well, partly to the fact that (laughs) I didn't sleep that well the night before. So feel really good. How did you sleep last night, Kate? Um. Well, first
0: of all, I slept on the couch. Oh, no. So, um, <laughs> you know, by definition, not that well. We're in this horrible pattern where um, our son wakes up in the middle of the night and we go back and forth. One of us uh, stays with him in the bed and one of us sleeps on the couch. And actually, the sleeping on the couch person gets the better sleep. Oh, really? Because they don't get like jabbed by the toddler. But I still don't sleep very well because A, the couch isn't comfortable, B, I hear all of the apartment noises that you don't hear in the bedroom. So last night it was like the radiator, the cats with their bowls in the kitchen, like all of the clock ticking above my head. Oh, God. You know when you can't fall asleep and it's like tick,
1: tick. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of just like it's counting the time when you're supposed to sleep. Yeah, the precious but minutes you're, thinking, you're losing. Oh, no, 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 no. Five, I'm, I'm only sleeping five hours if I sleep now. I mm-hmm. like just lost an extra hour.
0: A lot has changed about the show in the 10 seasons and over 200 episodes we've done since that first one. Most obviously, I don't have a co-host anymore. Anissa left Fast Company in late 2019 to travel and freelance. Part of the premise of pairing Anissa and I together was that she was much earlier in her career than I was. We wanted to explore how workplace issues like sleep, email, multitasking, and work-life balance were experienced differently in different periods of your career. But what we often found out was that many of our experiences with things like digital distraction or signs of burnout might have had different root causes, but the methods to tackle them were often the same. Those early episodes might not sound as polished, as I hope our later seasons do, but they are a treasure trove of expert advice on the kind of bread-and-butter topics that will always be relevant. One of the biggest strengths of those early years is the practical expert advice. In fact, by our second season, we started to call some of that advice into its own segment called You Might Want to Write This Down, which became its own video series. You Might Want to Write This Down How to Beat Imposter Syndrome Number one, learn to take your mistakes in stride. Try to view mistakes as a natural part of the process. Additionally, push yourself to act before you feel ready. There will never be the perfect time and your work will never be 100% flawless. Number two, train yourself to stop relying so heavily on external validation. No one should have more power to make you feel good about yourself than you, even your boss. On the flip side, learn to take constructive criticism seriously but not personally as you become more attuned to internal validation you can start to nurture your inner confidence number three keep a praise and achievements folder keeping a list of all of your quantifiable achievements is good practice for anyone who wants to get a promotion but it's also useful to remind yourself how much you've done when you feel inadequate Add compliments and praise to the folder too. When someone sends you a thank you email or your boss or colleague pays you a compliment, add it to the document. It's human nature to remember the bad and embarrassing moments, so force yourself to remember all the good things too. Find Secrets of the Most Productive People in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In our third season in early 2019, we dedicated months to a deep dive into career topics like the biggest resume mistakes, whether or not cover letters are worth it, the right and wrong answers to common interview questions, what to say in a salary negotiation, and we even answered listener questions over a dedicated phone line. This listener says, I know we're in an age when transparency is all the rage, but I was raised to not talk about money. And in my office, that's the vibe I got too. the last couple of weeks. I've had two different people ask me what I make. One of them is a close friend and told me that they suspected they were being underpaid. And the other is someone that I'm not close with and just straight up asked me without context when we were at a company happy hour one day. I don't feel comfortable revealing my salary, but I also get why it's important to talk about it. What should I do? I mean, the real problem with this is why are we not taught to talk about money? You're right. For the first step is like as a culture, we should just be talking about money more. A lot of people are really bad with money and bad with managing money and don't understand a lot of the basics of it because it's not taught. And like, you also just, you don't know. Like, you know, like we in our episode about negotiation, I think I said, for an embarrassingly long time i never negotiated because nobody ever told me that you should and you know, yeah. i was just like yeah okay thank you you know and and like having being more comfortable talking about it is 100% the first step
1: i went to a talk about salary negotiations a couple of weeks ago and it was a woman who suspected that all of the women in her company was being underpaid and she asked one of her white male colleagues how much he made And I think he also had the same reaction. She just said, okay, do you make over this range Mm -hmm. or do you make under this Mm -hmm. range? And apparently when she said that, he was really comfortable Mm -hmm. with talking about.
0: One of my favorite episodes from this time is when we would have a debate on a controversial work-life topic. I even debated my boss, then Fast Company Editor-in-Chief, now Mansueto CEO, Stephanie Mehta, on if a resume should be one page. A lot of times for people to fit it into one page, they'll make super small fonts or really like mess with the margins or whatever. Wouldn't you prefer a spaced out, easier to read document that's on two pages?
2: That's a good point. I'd probably prefer something that's cleaner and easier to read across two pages. But again,
1: I've been doing this for 25 years. I can definitely fit everything onto one page. I spent a lot of my career
0: at two or three places, but I've also had I think, a a reasonable number of job changes. I will say, as an aside, the funky
1: formatting is problematic. And this is probably revealing my age, as is my preference for one-page resumes, (laughs) because I think that the consensus in favor of one-page resumes, certainly here
0: in the office, tends to be among people of a certain age. But the thing that drives me crazy are the, like, newfangled formats with, like, columns and photography and artwork and social media handles all over the place. Like, I much prefer just the facts, ma'am. Yes. On that, we can agree. The two-page resume sometimes is a boon for applicant tracking systems because they're not looking at how many pages it is. They're looking for keywords. And if you can get more keywords in on your longer resume— You're right in that the one-page resume view is an older school of thought that people are moving beyond. Some people who are actually even recent grads will have longer resumes. When the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, I returned from maternity leave with my second child and we dove into timely topics like finding a job in a pandemic, how to manage teams in a time of crisis, parenting in a pandemic, and breaking mental health stigma
1: at work. So if we were in a normal situation, I would start with... Let's dig into what your history is, your background, what works well, what doesn't, what are you looking to do, how can we leverage your transferable skills. But now, before that step, I'd say the first step is let's research the different markets and industries. So if you were in food services, maybe you were corporate management or something there and it's closed, we don't know when it's opening or they've decided that when they reopen certain roles won't be there, potentially that's not a lane you can go down anymore. So let's first start with what tangential industries make sense for you, or what's an industry you've always wanted to break into, but never would before. And then let's look at the viability of that that industry. So I think starting there with just what's out in the market, what makes sense would be step one. Then you can overlay transferable skills, interests, things like that, and see how you can um, do things. I think what people, a misconception people have is that if I'm on a path doing a specific thing in a specific industry, then I have to continue that.
0: In the fall of 2020, we started our fifth season with a four-part mini-series called Reinventing Education, where we looked at how families, teachers, the government, businesses, and school healthcare workers were preparing to reopen schools and grappling with the effects of prolonged closures and the ripple effects it had on all aspects of life, work, and the economy.
1: This was supposed to be the first year that Cesar spent all day in school and he was preparing to go back
0: to work. He'd been sending out his resumes um, and he was excited about it. And obviously that's all been put on hold now with this added layer of responsibility.
3: Look, I only have one child and this is a child that has autism. So I don't know what other parents are doing. Mm -hmm. But for us, we were already doing five things and now we have to do five more. Mm -hmm. And... And we have to do it, right? Because there's nobody else to turn to. And mm-hmm. that's the part that bothers me, that I know that at some point I can't do it all, right? Um, and luckily, you need us here. But otherwise, we'd be, we'd be uh, lost mm-hmm. if it wasn't one person.
0: So what will be the plan for this school year for them? So they'll be entirely remote, which is what they wanted. But at the time we talked, they didn't have much guidance beyond a start date.
3: I don't know what the schedule is going to be. We haven't been told who the teacher is. We don't have any guidance at all on what to expect. And we don't have enough information to know what to do.
0: In early 2021, we entered our sixth season with a new name, The New Way We Work. COVID had dramatically changed the way that we work, but we also wanted to help listeners make sense of the other ways work was changing. The first season of the rebranded show, we tackled some of the biggest workplace issues like white privilege and tone policing, disabilities at work, gender pay gap, the glass cliff, and being queer at work. These are all topics that we've been covering at Fast Company for years, but hearing directly from the experts and the real implications on how we can actively be a part of changing our workplaces was quite a learning experience.
2: I love that you were framing culture fit and code switching. They they kind of are this chicken and an egg argument. Where if you code switch well enough, you're also reinforcing the belief that this culture is great and people can fit into it and we don't need to change it because companies may not be aware that what they're actually doing is forcing people to assimilate via code switching, via covering and other forms of impression management strategies that a lot of marginalized people engage in. Which is reducing their ability to be authentic at work, increasing their cognitive, emotional load and and taxing them in various ways but but at the same time by choosing to code switch you're also reinforcing the belief that this culture is one in which i can fit in so it's very challenging to to figure out where to intervene in in this cycle
0: in our seventh and eighth seasons in late 2021 and early 2022 we dove into the most pressing issues of the changing workplace landscape covering topics like the great resignation and quiet quitting, how to collaborate in a hybrid workplace, the four-day work week, and how to cut down on the number of meetings. We also looked into the future of work to understand the rise in the labor movement, why more people are freelancing, what portable benefits would look like, and what makes work meaningful. You sacrifice, you know, especially I think in in media and creative industries, like you you sacrifice for this role and you don't need those protections of, you don't need the paid time off and all of those like guaranteed, you know, sort of things because you have, you're lucky to have this prestigious job, right?
3: I think people have just kind of woken up to the fact that, yeah, you can't eat prestige. Your landlord doesn't accept cool points or kombucha. You know, when I was working at Vice, I remember one of the tipping points that really helped us push our organizing forward was <laughs> two weeks after we started having these conversations, one of the founders bought a $23 million mansion that was used in the entourage show. And some of us are making 30 grand a year living in Brooklyn. The material realities of working for a cool place or having an interesting or fun job, like just because you're not working in a coal mine, folks that work in coal mines are probably getting paid better than people that work in the New Yorker. And they've had, because they've had unions since 1890.
0: Yeah. When you say kombucha, it's funny because that just makes me think of like all of the tech companies of this is, you know, maybe five, 10 plus years ago, where it was like, look, we have ping pong tables and cold brew on tap and like all <laughs> of that. And it's like, and we've written about this, you know, extensively at Fast Company, like that's not what matters to people. Like what matters to people yeah. are the basics that matter to everybody. Finally, in the fall of 2022, we opened our ninth season with a four-part Ambition Diaries miniseries. The project was one that I had envisioned for years, and I'm so proud of how it came together. In collaboration with the journalism nonprofit, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, we set out to find what it's really like to be a woman working in the U.S. right now and how things had changed over previous generations. We sent seven reporters from across the country to speak to 14 mothers and daughters about issues like unpaid labor, discrimination, pay gap, career advancement, work-life balance, and how the pandemic has changed our relationship to work. The project aired over four weeks and won this show a nomination for Best Business Podcast from the Podcast Academy.
3: Before it was called Human Resources, it used to be called Personnel. My boss, who was the director of HR, thought that the secretary that worked for general counsel was very attractive. Um, and one day she came in, in a—I guess it was like a dress that was very form-fitting. So again, this is the director of personnel and he's calling her name and he's laying dollars down on the floor as he's backing up towards his office.
2: Towards the end of my time there, we had some pregnant women. Man, the comments, especially those in leadership, that of maternity leave being a vacation or when we had to extend a reasonable accommodation for a pregnant woman, well, we might as well fire her. We're just giving away money for free. What's the point of this? I even had several women who were scared to announce their pregnancies.
3: That was very, very common. As I grew through the ranks, I remember when I got promoted to director, the very first thing that they called it, you know, executive coaching. He got feedback about me from um, my peers as well as the people under me. The feedback was that I was smart and I knew I was smart. But I was intimidating to everybody else, and so the feedback for me was to energy match and to basically make myself smaller so that they could be comfortable, which was wild as hell to me.
2: I mean, the sexism, the racism ran rampant, I think it still does, and because we're brought up in this culture of like, you know, climb the ladder. Do what you got to do. Oftentimes you have that nervous chuckle, that uncomfortable chuckle, or you turn the other cheek or, and, and. And you learn
3: to stay silent because the few times that you do say something,
2: you're the
0: troublemaker. On one hand, it's hard to believe that we've made so many episodes of the show, but on the other, we are just starting to scratch the surface. It's long been said that work is one of the biggest parts of our lives, that we spend a third of our lives at work even though that line has blurred in the last few years. But for me, the topics that we cover on this show expand well beyond work. I've long said that Fast Company's work-life content is relevant for anyone with a job, but I'd go so far to say that the topics that we cover on the new way we work are crucial for anyone who wants to understand how the world is changing and anyone who wants to make things better. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next five years and beyond as we continue on this journey through the changing landscape of our work lives. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag, The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu, with editing by
3: Nicholas Torres.